Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession comes from Proverbs 20, verse 30. Blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. In this verse, we see the ultimate purpose of corporal punishment. Corporal punishment is designed to discipline or reform a wrongdoer of attitudes or behavior that is unacceptable. And in this verse, more specifically, to cleanse away the sin that dwells so very deep within the heart of man. Sin is unacceptable in the sight of a holy God. This passage tells that blows and strokes clean away the evil within. Now, how can that be? How can it be that when we receive a blow or a stripe or a stroke that we are actually being cleansed of evil or sin? Well, we are reminded throughout Scripture that we are children and that God is our Father. And we are reminded by simple observation in the life of a family that children naturally rebel against their fathers. In Hebrews 12, we see the author quoting from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and he says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated in, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here we see that God disciplines, and he only disciplines those whom he loves. We are to respect him and his wisdom as our father for this. Why? Because it is for our good. Why? So that we might become holy. Why? so that we might begin to produce fruit that is filled with peace. How and when does this come about? It comes about only through training. It must be remembered that God has a goal for his children, just as a father does for his child. That goal is that we might become holy, just as he is holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. We are becoming more and more sanctified by the very purging of our sin through discipline. 
Not only did God purge us of the consequences of our sin through the death of Christ upon the cross, but he continues to purge us and to refine us through the fires of the furnace of suffering. We learn more through the suffering of life than we ever learn through the blessings of life. So don't waste your sufferings. These sufferings come to us via blows and strokes and ultimately from our loving Heavenly Father. For they cleanse away the evil and they clean away the innermost depths of our heart. Even Job knew this, that the wounds and the strokes worked for his good. And in, in, in wisdom he said, Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. The psalmist understood this as well and said right back to God in prayer, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He continued on by saying, In faithfulness you have afflicted me. So as we reflect on this proverb, may we think wisely as our loving Heavenly Father wants us to and accept God's word to us as he says in Revelation, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This brings us to a time in our worship service where we can kneel if you're able and confess our sins. Jesus Christ. I've given this a, a three-part outline. It's really a two-part outline with an application. Number one, the glory of God concealed. Man could not look on the face of God, a fearful thing. And then number two, the glory of God revealed. Man may now look on the face of God, a glorious thing. In the past, as you saw from the text, God's glory was concealed. We go to the Old Testament and we see throughout the Old Testament, no one could behold the face of God. If they were to behold the face of God, they would die. God was, a, was declared as a consuming fire. Moses said, let me see your glory. It was a desire and a passion for Moses to actually see the face of God. And yet God said, you can't, you can't do that. You can't do that because I am holy and you are not, and it would destroy you. But in a gracious way, he let him see part of his glory. But the rest of his glory was concealed by the rock. In Numbers 6, 24 to 26, we have the blessing that Aaron was to give to the people. And you will hear pastors give this blessing a lot. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We're all familiar with that. But back then it was the passion and desire of God's people to behold the face of God. May his face shine upon you. And yet, they couldn't. 
In fact, it was so clear that God said you couldn't that when he constructed, when he gave the, uh, the, the instructions to construct the tabernacle, part of it was creating the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there was a veil, a curtain that was erected. Over time, when that tabernacle was destroyed, or was, was then rebuilt into, a, into the temple of Solomon, and then ultimately that was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt in Jesus' time, this curtain, this veil became bigger and bigger and bigger. To the point when, in Jesus' time, the curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 4 inches thick. 4 inches thick, that is one heavy curtain. This curtain separated the rest of the tabernacle or temple from the Holy of Holies. And no one could go in there and be in the presence of God. God's presence was always a bit at arm's length. And people still long for it just as we long for it today. But something changed. Something changed when Jesus came. Because Jesus came to bring us into the presence of God. In Mark 15, 38, it says, When he died on the cross, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now imagine that, from top to bottom. Just go from top to bottom. That's not going to happen by a human. 60 feet high. And it's four inches thick. And it was torn in two from top to bottom. Very clearly to indicate that God was doing something. He now tore the veil, allowing us access into the throne room of God. If and only if we came through Christ. That which was concealed is now revealed for us. And we see that in our passage, that as Moses came down from the, from, the, from the mountain after he had beheld God's glory, not his face, but that just, just the backside had lit him up so much that when he came down, people recognized there was a difference. And it was a bothersome difference because they could see that the glory was departing. It was fading. It's almost like getting a big sunburn. I kind of picture him that way, and eventually the, the, the tan, it fades. But it was fading before their eyes. So he put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't see that sad departure of it. They were separated, but now we have come together because of it. In the passage it says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So the veil, now that it's been removed, we see some of the beauty in Hebrews 10, 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence now to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. We now can come into the throne room of God. And it's why when we pray, we say, 
in Jesus' name. Because Jesus says, pray to the Father. And when we come to the Father, we're actually coming before the Father, a place we do not belong, should not be able to get into, except that the veil has been rent. And now we can go in. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in this passage, we're seeing right now that God at one point was un unavailable, unassailable, except by living in the area, in the community, but we couldn't really get to God. Not like we can get to him now. We live in a wonderful time. We live in a wonderful time because Jesus has made that bridge and connected us. That's really just the background. I want to go right to what I think is the practical point of this passage. And it's in section three of my outline and application. One, we do not lose heart. Now, in this whole passage, Paul is defending his ministry. In 2 Corinthians, he has to come before the people and say, look, I'm doing this ministry, and I am a legitimate apostle. And he has to defend why he's doing it. People have been accusing him of wrongdoing. And he defends his ministry, even though he has to struggle through a whole host of suffering. But he's not just defending his ministry to the Corinthians to prove that he's a legit minister. He's also doing it to teach a greater lesson to the Corinthians. Because we are all ministers. We are like the Corinthians. We get to minister the gospel to others. We come here, and then we go out. Why do we not lose heart? Why do we not lose heart when we are being attacked, when we are being accused falsely? when we are suffering for the gospel. Because we are being transformed. In verse 3, 18, it says that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're no longer just who we were before Christ. We are now being changed into the image of God through his son. Beholding, and we get to behold that image. In 4, later in the chapter, 16 through 18, it says, We do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
That should always encourage us when we go through trials and tribulations and suffering, even physically. And that's the verse I gave to the young man with the collapsed lung. The beauty of that young man is he knows that and he believes it. Number two, we refuse to tamper with God's word. Number two and number three really kind of connect, but they go together. The word tamper means to water down or to dilute. And we do not ever water down or dilute the word of God. As ministers, as evangelists, as teachers or bearers of the name of Christ, we must never change, corrupt, alter in any way the word of God. For if it is the very words of God, then why make them words of men? So why do we not change it? If God's word speaks hard things, we should speak hard things. If God's word speaks soft things, we should speak soft things. If it speaks encouraging, we encourage. If it speaks condemnation, we, we condemn. And why? Because soft preaching makes hard hearts. And hard preaching makes soft hearts. And we are all preachers of the word that we profess. So when we're out in the community, don't water down. Don't sugarcoat. Don't tamper with the word of God. Especially if the truth is hard. We speak only the truth. But what if the truth hurts? Well, you see, you don't tell the truth. If you don't tell the truth at the beginning, it might come across as, oh, that, was, that wasn't so bad. But in the end, that becomes a lie. And a lie ultimately hurts. So you're either going to hurt up front, or you're going to hurt in the back. And if we tell the truth, and it hurts, then there's healing at the end. I was working at a at a restaurant called the Chanhassen out in Southfield. Some people might know where that restaurant is. I was a wait staff there, and I ran across, uh, well, worked amongst a lot of wait staff, and this one gal never really said anything to me. And it wasn't like I went around preaching that I was a Christian, but I think everybody knew it. I didn't, didn't behave like them, and Whenever I had the chance, I, I'd tell them, you know, I was going to church, I did this. I, I don't think I was really outspoken in any way, but I was always ready to do something if it was, if it was available. Well, this one girl comes up to me, and she was, she was all, almost visibly shaking. She was, she was mad. And she said, I got a question for you. You're a Christian, right? And I said, yeah. And she told me the story of how her and her fiancé had been engaged for about a year. They were both going to school together. And the fiancé had a roommate who was a Christian. And he was one that talked and talked and talked about God to the point that it drove this kid crazy. Because he was not, nor was she. And he would come back and tell her, man, he's nuts. He's an absolute crazy. Well, one day, after this young man had been telling him, you need to accept Christ, you need to accept Christ, you need to accept Christ, he got struck by a car and died. So at the funeral, 
while everybody was there and she was crying for her fiance, the roommate came up, put his arm around her and said, it's okay, he's in a better place. And she looked at me and said, what? Is that true? Because she made it clear he was not a believer. He rejected it as much as she rejected it. And she saw this as a hypocritical lie. Well, if what you're saying is true, he's not in heaven. So is it true? And she pointed right at my face. And I thought, oh, okay, this is not the way I wanted it to use. And I prayed feverishly and thought, Lord, how do I, how do I answer this? And I said, if the Bible's true, which I truly believe it is, then no. If he did not profess Christ as his Lord and Savior, he's in hell. And with her finger at me, she pulled it down and said, that makes sense, and walked away. A week later, I went off to college again, and I've never seen her to this day. And I would love, love to know where she's at. But this good intention, putting the arm around and trying to comfort the mourner, was watering down the truth. And it didn't help her. It angered her because she saw hypocrisy. The truth may hurt, but the truth is still true. And it is the truth that sets us free. We refuse to tamper with God's word. We only speak the truth. And in verse 5 it says that we proclaim Jesus as Lord. We don't just proclaim Jesus as Savior. He's here to save us. But he's not going to save us if we do not bend the knee. If we say, I'll take the Savior, but I ain't taking the Lordship. That's not the gospel. In 3.16 it says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, not when one turns to the Savior. He is the Savior. And He is the Lord. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Thus we point people to Jesus, not just as Savior, but absolutely as Lord. We don't point people to Jesus so that they can have a better life now. Because as we all know, walking with Jesus doesn't really create a better life now. It doesn't make life smoother. We don't start coming into money and comforts and privileges. Rather, the world seems to be turning more and more against us. But we do come to Christ for a better life later. Though our outward man might be wasting away, these light and momentary afflictions are working for us a greater glory in the future. Because walking with Jesus will bring about suffering. And only through training will we be better fit for these long distances. When we have... When we, when, we, when we train, when we train for a sport, or if you exercise, if you run or lift weights, 
If you really are trying to get stronger, it's not easy. You push and you push and you push weights till your muscles are hurting and even screaming at you. And then the next day, they're saying, what were you doing? And yet the tearing of those muscles tears one cell into two, and then those two heal, and you're twice as strong in that cell. And we continue to do that and train. Walking with God is the same way as sanctification. We train ourselves, we push ourselves, we strive for the now. Because the future is already set for us. If we save money, we're not saving for the... If I have money, it would be much more pleasurable to spend it right now. But to put it aside for another day, that takes discipline. That takes training. And Jesus, as Lord, cost us a price right now. But a disciplined walk with God pays out in the end. Hebrews 12:11 says, for, this, for, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness who've been trained by it. Five. The word here says we make our save ourselves slaves for you for the sake of Christ. Ministers, this is easy for me, I serve you. And the word here is doulos. It's a slave. I am making myself your slave, but not really for your sake, for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ. Because I want him to be magnified and exalted, and I want him to be magnified and exalted through you. So when you go out, who do you serve? Who do you make yourself a slave to? Because we are all ministers of that gospel. We are all professors of the name of Christ. Who are we making ourselves slaves for? And are we making them slaves for our own purposes? Or are we making them slaves for Christ? Are we making ourselves slaves for Christ? Finally, at the end, we remain humble before men and God. When, when the veil has been removed and we get to behold God for who he is, and we are getting to see him more clearly as life goes on. It's not perfect. It's a mirror, it's a cloudy mirror, as Paul talks about. We see it dimly, but we see. We see something that the rest of the world does not see. That should not bring about arrogance and pride. That should bring about humility. Because we get a privilege and we want the rest of the world to see it. But we know that we don't deserve that privilege. That privilege comes because of grace and mercy. First Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul here is saying, if you are a Christian, then you are different. But you're different because somebody made you different. Namely him. And that everything that you have, you received. 
And since we know that we have nothing in and of ourselves, we have nothing to boast about, nothing to get proud about, nothing to get arrogant about, and we need to be humble and patient before those who do not see. The most frustrating thing in my life is watching my friends who do not profess Christ, who do not even see him and actually utterly reject him, die. I see it, them dying, and I think, God, remove the veil. How do I talk to my friend and say, behold God. God, do something in this person's heart. Have them turn to you. God said, let, shine, let light shine out of darkness. He said that in the beginning. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was. And now he has shown light into our dark hearts. He gave us the light. He gives us the knowledge. He shows us Jesus. He reveals his face to us through Jesus. And the only way we see the face of God is when we turn to Jesus, look on Jesus, and we say, that's God. That's God. So if you want to see the glory of God, you turn to Jesus. And when you turn to Jesus, the veil is removed. And when the veil is removed, you see God. And we, with unveiled faces, will behold the glory of the Lord and begin to be transformed into the very same image from one degree of glory to another. Supper centers on the covenantal nature of this table. A good working definition of the covenant is this. A covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, with attendant blessings and curses. God governs the world through blessings and through curses. And this table is the covenant, is a table of the covenant. It winnows out covenant keepers and covenant breakers. Covenant keepers extend no hand to receive the elements but the hand of faith. And they open no mouth to receive the bread and the wine, but only a mouth of faith. It is not faith in our heart or in our mind. Faith is a gift of God. It is a gift that he gives to enable us to receive him. We do not receive our ability to receive. Instead, we receive him. Covenant breaking occurs here when anyone thinks they are able to impress God in any way, by any means. God receives us and gladly, but not because we in ourselves are impressive. His reception is all of grace. It is grace on the front and the back, on the top and the bottom, and on both sides. It's all grace. This is an offense to certain a certain kind of stuffy and prim mind. And our efforts, and the efforts are made uh, to combine what God offers here with something that we can offer back, something we came up with on our own, and not simply what He has given in the first place. That is covenant breaking. The warnings are there, and the warnings are real. But we have assembled here today in order to keep covenant, to meet Christ, to trust Him, and to proclaim that He, what He has given us, to proclaim. And so we eat and drink, and we consider it the ultimate last toast to the salvation of the world. You belong to Christ. 
You have been identified with him in your baptisms. So come, come in faith. He welcomes you. This table is for all those who have been baptized and are under the authority of Christ and his body, which is the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine together with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you're without hope except for that sovereign mercy of God, and that you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.